0: Travel budgets are tight these days, that's why WIHI is always happy when we can offer audiences a virtual opportunity to learn about another country's experience, improving health and health care. Perhaps you have been to Scotland, and perhaps you went on a a lot of lovely walks and hikes in the mountains, visited magnificent islands, or enjoyed the many, many locks. However, my guess is most of you have not had the pleasure of meeting and hearing from that country's most senior government healthcare leader, Derek Feely. Well, he's here in the studio with me to share what has been going on in Scotland to improve patient safety first and foremost, but also to improve the health and well-being of the country's population as a whole. I've also got IHI's Maureen Bisignano, Jeff Selberg, and Carol Harrigan in the studio to help explain the connections between what's going on in Scotland and the improvement challenges in the U.S. and in many other countries. There's nothing like listening to a wise person with a Scottish brogue, so you're in for a treat on this edition of WIHI. And welcome to WIHI. As many of you know, we're an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We come to you biweekly. And also for your later listening and convenience, you can find us on IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan. I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. Now, in case you haven't heard, there's a punchline of sorts to Derek Feely being with us today on WIHI. Derek is joining IHI as an Executive Vice President starting September 1st. So this is really the beginning of your hearing a lot more from him about improving health and healthcare around the globe. Maureen will say more about that in just a moment. And a reminder, if you like to use Twitter, we welcome your tweets during or after today's program. Thanks for using the hashtag IHI in your tweets. That way we get to connect with others uh, who follow IHI on Twitter. IHI's Twitter handle is at the IHI. I also want to extend a special welcome to leaders from the Nuffield Trust who who have been visiting IHI and are listening in as part of their uh, visit here uh, to the organization. So let me now introduce our guests and a reminder that their longer bios and all sorts of achievements and accolades are on the WIHI web pages. On IHI.org. First, let me introduce Maureen Bizignano. She's IHI's president and CEO. She's a prominent authority on improving healthcare systems, is an elected member of the Institute of Medicine, and serves on the Commonwealth Fund's Commission on a High Performance Health System. Maureen was IHI's Executive Vice President and COO for 15 years before becoming
1: CEO
0: and advises healthcare leaders around the world. I'm always thrilled when Maureen can join AWHI. Welcome, Maureen. Thank you, Madge. Jeff Selberg works side by side with Maureen as the IHI's Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer. He has overall responsibility for IHI's operations and works closely with the leadership team on strategic partnerships, new models of care, and developing and spreading new definitions of patient safety. Prior to coming to IHI, Jeff served for 12 years as President and CEO of Exempla Healthcare in Colorado. One never has an uninteresting conversation with Jeff. Welcome to WIHI. Hi,
2: man. Okay.
0: Carol Harridan, also at the table. You can see what John meant about it being a, a full I'm table here. Team. Carol Harridan is here. She's a vice president at IHI and an expert on patient safety. She's been leading IHI's hospital improvement work and partnerships in Scotland, as well as in England and Denmark. Carol is the executive lead of the IHI Patient Safety Executive Development Program, fondly referred to as the PSO training, and I've done a few cartwheels about finding a spot on Carol's schedule. Welcome. Hey, Madge. Thank you. All right. And our special guest today is Derek Feely. He's the Director General of Health and Social in Scotland and the Chief Executive of the National Health Service there. In these capacities, Derek is the Principal Advisor to Scottish Ministers on Health and Care Issues and he provides direction to the work of NHS boards in ensuring the delivery of high-quality healthcare. And as I mentioned, Derek is leaving his position. He'll be doing so in August and he will become an Executive Vice President here at IHI, effective September 1st. So a warm welcome to you, Derek.
3: Thank you very much, Matt. All right.
0: Well, we're all here and you're all getting on board. So, uh, you know, don't worry about being late. Just grab a seat and uh, cozy up to your computer. And we're glad you're all here today. A reminder in the second part of the show, your questions and comments will really be welcome. So, Maureen, let me start with you. Any organization, working on health and healthcare improvement today would definitely scour the world for the best talent um, to add to its leadership ranks. But um, there are some particular challenges and imperatives, I think, for quality improvement in the U.S. and globally that might serve as a particular backdrop for Derek coming to IHI at this time. So maybe as part of your introduction uh, of uh, Derek, you might speak to that for just a couple minutes. Thank you, Madge.
4: It is, uh, first of all, a a delight to welcome Derek to the IHI leadership team. And as Madge says, the timing is critical. As I travel the world and work with leadership uh, teams and and executives and uh, governments on how to improve, the biggest question I'm getting is about the triple aim. When I was a hospital CEO some years ago now, my work as a hospital executive was very different. It was focused on safety, we were looking at relationships in the community, but they were mostly through physicians and through uh, setting up new services. The world has changed so much in the last 15 years, and what what executives are asking about now is something very different. The triple aim means health of a population,
1: population. the experience of
4: care, and um, in reducing cost per capita. As we look for models and leaders around the world, I can't think of anybody better than Derek to join us because he's done all three of these things. An economist by background with incredible vision about bringing health and social care together and really creating a a fine health care service. I think what Derek brings is a model, he's really done it, the triple aim, and I think will be able to help us to answer the questions that I'm getting from senior leaders worldwide. Okay. And you've done a
0: lot of traveling back and forth to Scotland, so I imagine you're constantly sort of uh, feeling in some ways that growing
4: connection in the relevance. I, I am, and, and I have a few stories I'll tell you later in the broadcast about things I've seen when I have visited Scotland that look very unfamiliar from a healthcare lens uh, and yet really do provoke me to think about new ways to improve health and healthcare. OK, that's great. Thanks, Maureen. All right, Derek, so um, you've actually had,
0: you're no stranger to these shores, uh, have also been back and forth and spent some time here. And um, I'm kind of curious about that connection and how it maybe even was part of fueling what finally uh, came about in Scotland to really galvanize an entire system to work uh, like a laser on uh, patient safety and also increasingly now on population
3: health issues. Welcome again. Well thanks, Madge. You're right, there is a, there is a history. It, it goes back really to 2004 uh, where I led a small group from Scotland leaders uh, and we visited Kaiser Permanente. And that meant when I was fortunate fortunate enough to secure a Harkness fellowship in 2005, uh, I had a ready-made home for that in, in Kaiser, so I went to spend a year in Kaiser Permanente. also did some work with the Veterans Health Administration, uh, really looking at complexity and chronic disease management, but got the chance to uh, look at a whole host of things, including the relationship between quality and cost, which again, I think we might come back to later in the broadcast. While I was in Kaiser Permanente, I started to hear about the 100,000 Lives Campaign. Uh, and, and uh, began to think about how we could make that happen in Scotland. Uh, and uh, The more I thought about it, the more I realised that actually um, it would probably work better for us not as a campaign but as a programme. As something that we would ask every hospital to do for every patient every time. And that's where the Scottish Patient Safety Programme came from. It came from listening to people's experience of the 100,000 Lives campaign and then working with IHI to see how we would translate that into into Scotland. And there, Carol in particular, well, everyone in IHI has been extremely helpful in that, but Carol in particular because she was our in-country IHI person and made a huge contribution to the, the building of will, the generating ideas, thinking about how you would measure uh, progress towards what was quite an ambitious aim of reducing hospital standardised mortality, firstly by 15%, and then we extended that to 20%, uh, and reducing harm by 30%. Um, and so far, reasonably successful uh, in, in making that progress. 12% reduction in uh, HSMR thus far. And then gradually we've been we've been extending. Firstly, we've been extending safety into the. Uh, primary care domain, into mental health, into maternity services. And then more recently we've been extending the methodology, so the, the collaborative methodology that we use to successfully improve patient safety, we've been taking into person-centred care uh, and then even more recently into uh, early years yes. and thinking about how can we give children in Scotland the best opportunities, how can we make Scotland the best place to go up. Okay,
0: I'm going to ask you, um, we do have a couple of slides, and it's always I want to remind people on the phone uh, only, on the phone only, if you're not looking at a screen on your computer, you can ask for these slides at info at IHI.org, or, the, or they'll be posted to the website tomorrow. Um, so there is a uh, dramatic and very impressive uh, improvement going on here, or reduction, I should say, in um, hospital standardized mortality rates. Um, I want to just flip back, uh, John, let's show this, uh, just a kind of snapshot of Scotland. Just give people a little bit better idea of what it meant to kind of, or what it means to sort of galvanize the whole country, and what in particular you focused on uh, to bring about those results.
3: So, so, as people can see, Scotland is a relatively small country, 5.1 million population. It's, uh, it's part of the United Kingdom, but actually we have devolved responsibility for our healthcare system. Uh, Organised in an integrated way through these 14 regional boards, all of the boards are responsible for everything from public health through primary care into hospitals. Uh, and uh, each of them have uh, are directly accountable to their populations. It's uh, Government-run, tax-funded system free at the point of care. Um, The the key things we've been trying to do in Scotland is, is, uh, as Maureen said in her introduction, um, apply the triple aim. So think at the same time about how you improve the health of the population, how you improve the quality of care, including safety, uh, and uh, how you get maximum value from uh, the, the money that taxpayers give us to fund our healthcare system. Uh, and so we've been trying to make progress on all three. Uh, the trick, I think, has been to, to, to um, prioritise successfully, uh, to focus in on a few key things that patients really need us to do as well as we can do it every time they come into contact with us. And that's one of the reasons why we chose safety as our first foray into uh, healthcare improvement of, of this kind. Uh, and we started, um, John perhaps wants to move to the next slide. We started by fixing a, a baseline of 2006 7 and then we've calculated our improvement against that baseline uh, in the period since, and as folks can see, that's resulted in a 12.4% reduction up to the September 2012. What
0: do you think, what areas of uh, safety have improved, would you say, the most?
3: Um, we've made significant reductions in infection levels. So hospital-acquired infections are down considerably. Um, our uh, surgical mortality is much reduced. So people are consistently using the surgical checklist. Um, we've made um, big improvements around um, medicines reconciliation, which actually has been one of the toughest changes to make. But we're again beginning to, to, to see yeah. some changes. Right, um, and so. Um, We're gradually, and it has taken us, I think, realistically four or five years to get to this place where we're now reliably in a number of the key areas seeing um, all of those measures in place in every ward that it needs to be in place, in every hospital where it needs to be in place. Okay. Um, So, again, intensive care would be another example where we've made significant improvements. Some intensive care units have now gone years since they last had a central line infection or a ventilator associated pneumonia. Okay. Well that all sounds uh Familiar,
0: and thanks, Derek. And uh, Derek also did allude to, and Maureen did as well, sort of focusing on the early years. And uh, there is a whole new campaign um, or initiative going on there, and we're going to come back to that in just a moment. Let me now turn to Carol. Uh, one of the reasons it's been so hard over the years to get on Carol's calendars because she's often been elsewhere and and lived in uh, Scotland for a while, and lived in England and um, it's amazing, but she's still a Vermonter, <laughs> I guess, <laughs> through and through. So, Carol, first just uh, maybe remind some people or tell some people who are maybe newer to this, what uh, was or has been your role with patient safety work in, in Scotland, and then maybe we can get into what kind of your observations
1: about that. Sure. So, uh, I was the executive lead for the Scottish Patient Safety Program on the IHI side. So one of the most important things decisions that we all made together from the beginning was um that this should look like a partnership and so for every role at IHI there was an analogous role in Scotland so I was the executive lead from IHI Jason Leach was the executive lead from Scotland so our team had a mirror team so we called ourselves Team Scotland. We didn't say the IHI team and the Scotland team. So that discussion and that way of treating one another and thinking about each other as partners rather than, I guess, at, you know, customer supplier maybe, it was a very powerful model to be all in all in together into this. Mm-hmm. So I think that set the. The piece of the tone of uh, how we would think about this from the start, okay,
0: so talk a little bit about um I mean there's no way in this show today there's tremendous amount of there's uh, literature there are articles there's things on our website about looking at kind of uh, more granularly at some of the work that's gone on in Scotland. Uh, we can certainly refer people to more, but as now you you maybe even have uh, some distance um. What would you say have been were have been some of the things that have worked very well? Some of the challenges, uh, sort of even the learning curve. Do you think uh, for the team, Team Scotland? Yeah, Team Scotland. <laughs> yeah.
1: Uh, you know, the sheer scale of it, of course, was a learning curve. So, uh, we have, uh, as some of you may know, uh, many of you out. Uh, out in Land, no, we use driver diagrams, and that's just your theory about how things are going to improve. So we put together immediately what we thought was a program diagram, those things we thought were critical for success. And some of them turned out to be right, and some of them turned out to be interesting, but not right. So I think uh, a couple of those were rationalizing measurement across the country. So the scale of Scotland and the willingness of people to um, dig into the work, I think, made a huge difference. So in one room, we could get every agency that was measuring infections and agree to a common definition. Because one thing we know, all over the world, staff are being measured to death by different agencies, uh, different uh, could-be regulators about the same thing, but measured differently. So that was just clear waste and a waste of will and time. So that ability for people to negotiate that, which often is very difficult, uh, that, that turned out to be very, very important for us. I think we hypothesized it was, and it was. So we met uh, three times a year, everyone in the country. And that group grew and grew as people started to say, well, wait a minute, I, we do have skin in that game. And, and we'd come together uh, in, a, in a room. And talk about uh, how we've managed that and how we learned from one another over time. that was a really big important piece. I think the other is just to be humble that you're in someone else's country and uh particularly American going <laughs> into the n h s you know you don't want you don't want to spend your a lot of time talking about access and so forth <laughs> uh so you you're clear what you bring, and you're also you need to be very aware of the limitations of that in a new context, so that's The the thing that Derek and I were talking about recently, uh, doing some reflection for some work at IHI is the primacy of relationship building. There's just no substitute for doing that, for understanding that no matter if you're trying to change anything, it's all about working, being together in that aim, and deep deep understanding and respect for one another. So I think that. Spending a lot of time up front doing that turned out to be probably more important than we thought it would be. Okay. Um, Maybe, and anybody feel free to jump in on this. I'm going
0: to turn to Jeff in just a moment, but I want to just ask one more question to Carol which is uh, some of the things you and I talked a little bit about as we prepared were sort of issues having to do with mandatory requirements, Mm -hmm. sort of these issues about loose tight things that people are required to do, things that we hope to build will and that folks will do it kind of voluntarily. That's an interesting dynamic uh, in a country with a system where people can be essentially, sorry for lack of a better word, told this is what we're doing. So maybe you could say a couple words about that and sort of what your learning has been about that, because in some ways the us well, we're all over the place, right, on that,
1: but right. we certainly um, grapple with that, too. yeah, and um, you know so one of the questions i, I would ask Derek uh, even now is um, is making it mandatory, uh, getting folks uh, you can get people to the table, you't make you can't make them, them buy in, so you can make them be there, but you certainly can't buy their well. And you can't make them stay. What keeps them coming back? So I guess that's part of my question, uh, Derek, (laughs) is, you know, as we start to look at other countries, and that's always the question that comes up, the degree of central control versus decentralized control, and where do you you can you can require people to be there. is that a great thing uh, is that what what what's the upside downside of that? So I have my own reflections, but I mean it gets people to the table. that's key, but does not keep them there so what what's your thinking
3: there <laughs> so I guess Carol I started from the position that I, I, I couldn't envisage a situation where patient safety would be an option why 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 would caring for people as safely as you could be an optional endeavor rather than a mandatory one? but you're right you you then need to think about how you're going to uh apply that methodology, and there's something about making sure that people get some space to decide where to start and so we did yeah, we did say that we think we thought that every hospital should do all of the interventions all of the time, but we didn't require that from day one, and we let people start from where they were comfortable starting. Uh, and we said, yes, yeah, sure, you start with general wards if that's where you're comfortable, if that's where you think you've got some traction or start with ICU if you'd prefer. So we gave some people some uh, room for local discretion. We gave them some say about what were the interventions. So you and I spoke to various groups and Jason to various groups of clinicians and said, this is what we're thinking about doing, but you know, just tell us how you feel about that. If you've got a better way, you know, we'll listen to you. We'll adapt. Uh, And there was something I think about trying to to make sure that the the messages that were coming from leadership, visibly, stacked up against what people were telling us from the point of care. And and it was was getting those two things to meet in the middle, getting those two sets of tracks to join up at some stage that really made the difference. Uh, And I can remember um, one particular event, hearing at this story about a group of nurses in one of our island boards um, who um, were in in theatre, visiting surgeon coming in, uh, waiting for the surgical checklist. And the surgeon appears and says, I don't do the checklist. And the nurse said, "Um, you do when you're here. And and when I heard that story, I started to think, we're getting somewhere.
0: (laughs) Right, right. I can, I'm
3: sure a lot of people can identify <laughs> with that. Maureen,
0: any, anything you want to jump in on around this issue, kind of our dynamics around building will, or um, you know, and, and trying to find that magic. I mean, uh, it'll be interesting uh, as, as Derek even spends more time in the U.S. again. You know, uh, as we sort of work through that patchwork here.
4: Well, just um, a week or so ago, I was visiting Scotland, and I was in a pediatric hospital, and I was talking to the staff about this notion of building will. And uh, one of the very dynamic nurses, an amazing woman, said to me, this is how I build will. She said in many of the national conferences about improvement, she's heard the uh, the uh, expression of moving from what's the matter to what matters to you. And so every child who's admitted to this pediatric hospital gets a piece of paper when they're admitted, and and crayons and all different kinds of uh, art things, and they are asked to make a poster that says, what matters to you? And I've got some of them hanging here at IHI now because they're so profound. They talk about things like, it matters that I have a bell that I can call so I always feel safe. It matters that my parents can stay in my bed with me. Um, If you read them, they're so, wonderful is saying, this is who I am, and every child writes their name and how old they are. And they get posted on the door so that everybody, when they walk in, it's really hard to walk in and not feel an immediate connection to these children. And I think it's just a small symbol of how to build the will for change because no nobody, no uh, physician, no nurse, as is, is rushed as you might be during the course of a day, can walk by that poster and not find meaning in their work.
0: Thanks, Maureen. Jeff, um, let me uh, scoot on up here <laughs> to our shared uh, Polycom mic here, um, and uh, we're going to get to your questions and comments in just a moment, and I uh, I uh, see some folks are starting already. But let me, um, Jeff, let me talk um, to you a little bit about um, When I put together this show and when I have put together other WIHIs in which we're trying to learn from other countries, uh, turning the world upside down with Nigel Crisp, learning from Africa, other places. Um, it's always sort of interesting to see if we can pull people together and really believe that there's something to learn uh, from each other's circumstances. In theory, people maybe do, but I'm, I'm asking Jeff to play the role of the skeptical uh, former hospital CEO who wonders. Well, this is wonderful. You, uh, Scotland has a system, a single kind of system, and, the, and some of the levers in ways. So what is it really that I have to learn uh, that um, I'm already knee deep in an awful lot here in this country? Well, Matt, I, I don't know <laughs> if I can answer this
2: question, because I don't do skeptical. So, uh, but I'll try. You don't? Know <laughs> God. try. It. Gee, it was in my notes. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I mean, patients are patients. People are people. I, I, I think Derek said it. I mean, how how can you, when you when you think about this, allow a person to be in harm's way? Uh, and it doesn't matter if they're Blue Cross or they're Medicare or they're uninsured. They're a person, and we don't want them in uh, harm's way. And that is the work of leadership is to set set the framework. I think it can uh be easy to get shut down as a leader if in fact all you're doing is reacting and responding to the next measure the next thing and you don't step back as I think Derek did and with in partnership with Carol and said what's our aim what is it that we're really focusing upon how do we set a uh, infrastructure here to support the people who are doing the real work and how do we build will what are those change packages And then how do we generate results? How do we deliver it? So if you step back and you say, we're here for patients and for community. We're here to learn how to improve. We're going to focus the work. We're going to get close to the people who are doing the work along that leadership structure. Like I said, you don't do skeptical. You you, you get at it, and and you go for it. And it's the greatest work in the world. The thing I've learned at IHI is the true all teach, all learn. We can learn from Scotland. We can learn from Malawi. We can learn from Singapore. Everybody can learn from each other. Uh, and that's what happens here. OK. Go ahead, Lori.
4: I, I just want to add that uh, at IHI, we have uh, a very um, busy week here this week. And we've got a group of uh, executives from Brazil. And one of the things that I learned from them was um, a new way for them to think about health in a very uh, impoverished community. And they've got they call them agents of um, health and are community health workers, and they assign one to every one hundred and fifty families. They live in that neighborhood, and once a month they go to every single house and they visit and they look at food and they look at medication and they look at the the health of the family and the dynamics. And what a difference if we had that kind of a dosing, so to speak, of somebody who nurtured 150 families toward health. I think we could go a long way toward getting to the triple aim in some parts of the United States. Okay, great.
0: Well, listen, let me just, um, I'm gonna just take a couple more minutes into the half hour. I'd like, Derek, to say something about the early years uh, work that's going on now. Um, We have a couple of slides on that uh, that John can queue up, and uh, I know uh, one of the things that struck me, I don't know, if you're a big Twitter person, you may have noticed a couple of weeks ago the hashtag, best place to grow up, reached number two on the worldwide Twitter trending list. <laughs> Don't ask me to get into that <laughs> Others can explain that. But there were over a million Twitter impressions in a very short period of time. And there was an interesting meeting going on. And this was really about something really real. Wasn't it just a Twitter campaign? Derek, what's, what's happening?
3: Yeah, well, it wasn't, it wasn't designed as a Twitter campaign at all. It was just <laughs> it just seemed to capture the mood. And we, uh, we were you know, beaten by Monsters, Inc. <laughs> in, in, in the <laughs> so, yeah. so there's no shame in that. Yes. Um, so yeah, the, the Early Years Collaborative aimed at making Scotland the best place to grow up. Um, hence the uh, hashtag, and and so a very ambitious program. Um, We know that um, the more risk factors that children uh, experience, um, the more chances that they'll suffer a developmental delay. Um, And the the evidence base here is great uh, in terms of what you can and should do to um, improve that situation. And that's why the collaborative methodology works really well in this territory, because It's about um, reliably applying what we know works. Um, So we've got three aims in the collaborative. There's an aim which is about reducing infant mortality. There's an aim that's about uh, improving social attachment. And there's an aim that's about uh, improving readiness to learn. As people will uh, be able to judge from the aims, those are not things that the healthcare system can achieve on its own. And so we've positioned this early years collaborative and what we, have, what we call in Scotland community planning partnerships, which is where um, local authorities, uh, healthcare systems, police, third sector organisations come together uh, to seek to improve outcomes for their local populations. And there's been, uh, there's been good practice in Scotland, as this has been across the world for these kind of things for quite a long time, uh, but what was missing was a method. Uh, and that's what we brought in the, the collaborative and we've got all 32 of our community planning partnerships now actively working on this, beginning to measure. And some of the things that we're measuring uh, aren't in the league yet of um, the kind of properly formulated run charts and stuff, but here's one example of a nursery school uh, who um, were trying to get um, parents to read to their children and so introduced this book called Bedtime Bear. And you can see that the children reported a 10% increase in um, whether, whether or not they got a bedtime story. It's a simple yes-no um, measure uh, after the introduction of bedtime bear. So um, it's early days yet with the, with the Early Years Collaborative, but we are, we are so excited by its potential. Okay. Well, we're going to hear a lot more. Um, I
0: love all these images here. Clearly, uh, there's some nice uh, imagery here that you can all download. We're going to hear more about that, and we certainly welcome your uh, questions. And IHI is definitely in, involved uh, in all of this. Um, all right. I think, John, we're at that moment where I know some folks have started to tweet, excuse me, chat get it all straight here, uh, a little bit. Uh, but just remind people, uh, John, uh, just in case uh, folks um, aren't as familiar with the column there.
1: Yeah, please, if you want to ask questions, uh, please make sure that they are uh, addressed to all participants down there in the right-hand corner on your chat window. All right.
0: So um, we. Uh, so some folks have just made some comments. Uh, you can address your comments really to anyone here. Uh, Derek Feely is prepared uh, for anything you wanted uh, to know uh, in t- about uh, Scotland, but we're afraid uh, to ask. Uh, Maureen, some folks actually picked up on your mention about uh, what's going on in um, Brazil, so uh, we're talking
4: globally. Can you uh, say anything a little bit about um, emerging work at all in that part of the world? Sure. So I will um, get the uh, the name of the program. I see a question yeah. about what the, the name of it is and um, get that out to folks. Uh, but it's, uh, again, about uh, community health workers. And I think it's about the locale of the, um, the worker and the deep connection with the neighborhood so that it's not a random assignment. Um, It's very much building a healthcare system into the community. And What we're starting to see around the world in different countries is this notion of the healthcare system sort of being, coming out of the walls of an office or a hospital and being located in a community. One, um, again, story from Scotland, when I was visiting there recently with some executives, I said, let's go to a place where, um, where we're seeing the health of children uh, dealt with, and instead of going to any kind of a health facility, we went to a school. And the teachers weren't doctors or nurses, they were students, 14-year-olds and 16-year-olds. And the 16-year-olds were the mentors, and they were mentoring the 14-year-olds. And I asked them, do you have goals? And these children, 14 and 16 years old, all said, we have three goals. The first one is the academic goal. So they all knew what they were strong in and what they were weak in academically, and they had uh, a set of goals around their own individual learning systems. But the second one is they said, we all have physical uh, goals. And they said, if you want to be a successful person, you've got to be healthy. And that means you've got to exercise. So every kid had their own exercise plan. And some played soccer and football or walked or swam, but everybody had a way to get themselves healthier. And the third one is they said, we need to expand our brain. So they all had some goal for development that included the art. Some played musical instruments, some painted, some did photography. But I thought, in a time when in the United States we're cutting back on physical education and many of those sort of perceived as optional things, here is a system that sees that health really is about building efficacy and resilience as a child. And I think it's that kind of bringing the healthcare system out into the schools or out into the neighborhoods that's so important.
0: Terrific. Thank you. A couple questions. Thanks, Maureen. A couple questions. Uh, Derek, somebody is asking uh, where funding came, uh, funding comes from for the early years uh, collaborative. Um, And then we'll stick with money a little bit, um, and maybe Carol, you can uh, chime in if you want as well. What were the incentives for the Scotland large-scale quality improvement financial? Uh, financial, it says, with a question mark. Um, and uh, let's talk first about funding for the early
3: years. So the, since the Early Years Collaborative is delivered in partnership, we are funding it in partnership. So government makes a contribution, but so too does the local authority partner and the health force. So we there's a pooling of resources to make the collaborative work. It's not an excessively expensive thing to run because largely it's about taking the bright spots from existing practice and making them happen more reliably so there's not a lot of new investment required. There's some infrastructure that you have to invest in and there's some capability building that you need to do but it's not uh, outrageously expensive. Uh, In terms of the Believers for uh, healthcare change, that, that, that I think the answer to that lies in Maureen's earlier comments about AAA. So We've made a conscious decision to try and work on population health, on the quality of healthcare and the improved the, the patient experience, and on um, the value that we get from the taxpayers' investment in healthcare from, on, from the resources side. Work on all three together. Um, and so, part of what we've been trying to do in the safety programme is to reduce waste, harm, and variation, which not only is better for patient outcomes, but is better um, for the financial bottom line. Uh, because, as we as we all know, it's ve- it's much more expensive to admit someone to hospital. Get, uh, they get an infection, uh, have to stay longer in that hospital get a whole host of complications, that's much more expensive care than admitting them to the hospital and they don't get an infection. Uh, that's not really why we do it. We do it because it's good for patients but um, it also has a financial benefit and so we very consciously tried to work on quality, cost and population health as three, the three parts of the Triple Aim and to integrate the work that we do in all three.
0: Okay. A lot of interesting questions. I think people, it's almost as though people are trying to figure out, yes, but how really have you done this? Um, were there some particular kinds of tools that you use? I, I do think it's it's hard sometimes to wrap your minds around, you know, how you get a, new, a country moving all in the same uh, direction. Any particular tools, any unique strategies, um, you know, anything you want to uh, address, either you or, or Carol, Derek, uh, in terms of uh,
1: what no, do you the, think. No, the strategies are universal. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's always easy when you're looking at someone else's work to say, well, you know, that could work in Scotland or that could work in California. But in truth, um, people go into healthcare universally for similar reasons. And they. Uh, there, there's glimmers of that even years later when they feel pretty beaten up and tired. It's going back, trying to find that again and giving people uh, skills to improve the care that they're delivering. So, it's not like uh, frontline people don't have good ideas. They're just, uh, uh, they're very busy and trying to get those ideas out and maximize them is really important. So The tools are really a pretty simple Quality improvement tools. It's using the model for improvement. We're learning to run small tests of change. So, you know, staff are really busy. So, you you make it a very small test. So we never. The thing that is important, I think, two things. We never back off. So we're relentless. So if you say I'm really busy today, so the test I needed you to run was with three patients. We'll say, well, can you run it with one? And I'll stay there until you know pretty much that happens. So you you just relentless. The relentlessly testing, and I think the tempo you establish. So, you know, we always say you test once a month, you learn once a month, you change once a month. So, trying to get a tempo, uh, and when staff see, that's true for all of us, but I, I will speak to staff, when they see the fruits of their labor changing something that's positive for patients and themselves, the testing doesn't feel like a burden. It feels like uh, my goodness uh wow, something i'm doing actually isn't causing an improvement, and that that um really catches fire uh, I have to say, and I think that's true everywhere it really is. I know how busy people are they're busy all over the world. this is not they they have to own their improvement of their own work, no matter what, even if you set a big target, even if you say you've got to improve uh your surgical site infection rates, or you've got to improve congestive heart failure outcomes. At the end of the day, it's an excess of care between the patient and the clinician where that happens. I don't care what, what, what you say. If you can't liberate that spirit and get those people deeply involved in improving the care they're giving, then nothing else is about for that, really. hmm Thanks. Yeah.
3: I'm, I'm sure Carol's right. And the key thing, I think, is to be able to connect all of that so that when you look at the strategy, and you look at the action that's being taken in those tests of change, you can see the connection. That, that People understand that they're taking the, this action in order to achieve the strategy, and they can understand that the strategy is sympathetic to the action that they want to take at the point of care.
4: And I think all that's wrapped in the support system of a collaborative. So they come together with 800, 900 people mm-hmm. all working in the similar field. They're, they this collaborative team helps them by building will, telling them stories, getting patients up there, telling why this is important, gives them change packages, and guides them with uh, execution capability, building the skills that they need. So you're talking about building the will at a strategy level and Carol at the frontline level, but it's all, I think, supported through this idea of a a national collaborative.
0: What about patient and family engagement, uh, Derek, uh, in, in Scotland? And um, this is something. Well, people all over the world are working on it. We're working on it in the U.S. Uh, it's, there's structural things that can be done. Um, there are, you know, folks who very naturally become very proactive, you know, around their own and their family's care, and then folks who have to kind of be given a little bit more room, uh, so that there are some people listening. What, what's that been like in Scotland?
3: So, like everyone else, we are actively working on this. Uh, I don't think we have all the answers as yet, but we're uh, we're finding a way through some of them. Um, So interestingly, the first thing we did um, was stop talking about patient-centred care and started to talk about person-centred care. And the main reason we did that is that patients told us that's what we should do. Um, that, that, That being thought of as a patient positioned them in the relationship in a way that they didn't find helpful because they didn't come to that interaction with a clinician just as a patient. They came with a whole range of things that were happening in their lives, and often with a very different set of preferred outcomes for the interaction. Much more—it's back to Maureen's point about what matters to you. Yeah, much more, they're interested in being able to visit their uh, grandchildren or take their dog for a walk, rather than the medical outcomes that sometimes we um, we expect them to want. Uh, and so there is, I think, something about changing that dynamic in the relationship between the person and the, and the uh, clinician, and also recognising that clinicians are people too, uh, and trying to make sure that there's a kind of um, a, a synergy that you get out of um, treating people with dignity and respect, um, treating them with care and compassion, both at the level of your staff and at the level of the engagement with the, uh, the person receiving care. So, as our WIHI audience is
0: want to do, and we appreciate all these questions and comments, people want to go to a website and download all the tools <laughs> that you've used, and... Uh, That's
1: good, because they're at WIHI. Right. <laughs> Secret sauce. Uh, and they're so, at the uh, Scottish Patient Safety Program, right. on the public website as well, so uh, SPSP. Okay. Uh, well, well we're going to include
0: NHS. all this in our resource document that will... Um, we might be able to chat in a few links to you folks right now, um, but we'll, as a reminder, by the next day, tomorrow morning, we have a nice page that has all the resources from today's show, including a lot of links on there, um, and, uh, you know, feel free also to keep the questions coming, because Derek will be around uh, more, and uh, it might be even easier for me to trip him in the hallway and um, ask him a question, and I can get back to you on that. I I want to um, just throw out a a question to all of you. Well, a couple of people, I don't know if we can really get into this. Somebody's trying to ask a little bit more on challenges with data, and is there anything that uh, you've figured out, perhaps, about amassing data, analyzing data, um, both as, I guess, part of the measurement that would be helpful uh, to others who are trying to often uh, get the right data and uh, review it in a, in a good way.
3: Yeah, I, mean, I guess, again, again, we have the same kind of challenges as everybody else. Uh, there's no shortage of data. Um, in fact, you might even argue it's the opposite, that we, have some, we sometimes have so much data that it obscures the, the, the key messages that you need. And so what we've focused on is trying, as Carol said, to um, to simplify the data collection and to reduce the number of data sets that people have to collect, and so you know, collect once, use many times, uh, but also to um, to have it more real time, and so to encourage people to collect their own data. And so if you go to a ward in a Scottish hospital that's participating in the Patient Safety Program, you will see the data that the staff have collected that day on a run chart on the wall. Mm-hmm. That That's the data that really matters for improvement. Mm-hmm. And then we are very transparent. We publish all of the data that we collect from all of the hospitals, um, it's, it's published openly. People can, if they're interested, can look at you know, what's the performance of each of the hospitals against the, the um, hospital standardised mortality ratio and so on, So, um, and there's a place for that, I think, but that's not the data that we really need for improvement. The data that we need for improvement is the data that the staff on that ward collected that day uh, that told them what was the impact of the changes I wanted to make. Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: All right. Anything
0: further on that? All right. No, yeah, no, I, 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 yeah.
1: I, I just quickly, I have to say that there's no substitute for staff collecting their own data. Okay. That uh, I, I know we think that's onerous, but there are all kinds of sampling techniques that do not make it onerous. And the only way they know if they're going in the right direction is real-time data. Data fed back to them a week later, a month later is just not helpful. I mean, Interesting, but not useful in in changing what I'm doing. Okay, all right. Somebody's curious about what foresight did you have? <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure. <laughs> did you think about this for a, for a long time? I mean, is this the vision that you had in, as you got uh, in, in, into healthcare? I mean, are you sort of seeing things unfold in a way that you might have imagined?
3: So it's a great question. Um, I guess the most um, foresightful thing we did, the most and in some ways it was the most difficult decision to take was around the whole mandating or not. You know, should we run a campaign or should we try and do something in every hospital for every person? And in many ways the easy thing would have been to work with the willing. Because we would have had some hospitals who would have said, yeah, we'll, we'll come forward. In fact, we had already some. We had. To, um, uh, Nine wells in Dundee, and with hospitals in uh, in Ayr and Dumfries who were uh, already working on safety. So we we, that, we could have just gradually expanded that, um, and I, I guess that's where my natural impatience came in. And I, I just wondered whether we could move more quickly to everyone. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. rather than follow the traditional route, try with one, try with five, try with all. Mm-hmm. Let's just go straight to all.
1: But well, we did that because we knew it could work through those other places. We did. Yeah. We, we, had, we knew it could. So how do you live with the fact that you know that you can create superior care at a few hospitals and leave it like that? I, mean, I don't know how you make that decision. And so once you know that, that the model fits and can be used, it's hard to decide we're going to leave some people behind. That's a difficult
0: decision. But I guess, pardon me for for jumping in here, but I'm I'm going to bring Jeff in again. I mean, that is kind of the reality of, in a way, that we, we do want to, that's our message here in this country, which is to try and appeal to that in folks. If you can do it here, you know, we said, why not everywhere? And we are faced, though, with some very big challenges about spread. Um, I don't know if they're you know similar at all in Scotland, but people finding out all kinds of issues that arise when trying to take it out of you know one innovative area. Um, I don't know thoughts about that, Jeff.
2: Well, data is important. Yeah, uh, for sure, it's it's essential. Uh, getting out and seeing it is more important. And that's what I found when i was in when I was in the field for decades, I was a leader that says, "Get me the information, I'll evaluate it, I'll judge it, I'll pontificate and exhort." And not much happened. When I went out and saw the real work, when i shadowed frontline nurses and other clinicians to really see. Uh, what their passions were and how we as management made it difficult for them. Then it became uh, a matter of will, ideas, and execution. Um, yes. I I could do lots of things and never be uh, where the real work was and is, which is on whether you're in a hospital or you're in an examination room or you're in the home. It's uh, it's with the patient, and so when you about things like walking rounds and shadowing and uh, seeing uh, those are those are critical to this idea of moving it forward
0: one of the things working on also a lot in this country and other places is leadership um, and champions and people like Jeff and you know um a <laughs> Derek and whatever I mean has that come naturally in sort of people in, in Scotland understanding kind of the role that leaders can play in bringing along um, almost the next generations of folks who are gonna be uh, pulling this all forward. You mentioned, mentioned Jason, Jason Leach, who was a fellow here at IHI, who has a big role uh, leading patient safety in Scotland as well. Um, is that kind of a new, new mindset, Derek? Uh,
3: I think safety does require uh, a somewhat different approach to leadership. Uh, and I think one of the requirements on, on leaders is that it requires you to be more generous with power. Generous with power, yeah. uh-huh. Because um, the real difference is going to be made by people at the point of care. And so I think there has to be very visible leadership and people need to be prepared to stand up and say, we are going to do this, this is going to work. Uh, people need to feel a sense of belief um, um, Struck by, I think it was John Stuart Mill said that um, uh, if you one person with belief is worth 99 with an interest, uh, and so I think it does need it does need belief, but it also needs a distributed leadership that um, you really have to work on. Uh, and so some of the conversations that Carol and I would, used to have is, what are we going to do with our chief executive cadre? How are we going to engage them in this? What about the medical directors of all the hospitals? How do we get them to play into this? The nurse directors, and so you need a you need a plan to engage the leaders. But I I regularly hear in Scotland now the, the senior leaders of the health boards say that the patient safety programme is the best thing we've ever done, and I'm proud to be associated with it, and very very active in in leading it. Uh, but I, think, I think it does require a different kind of approach. It does, and
1: we we hear all over the world all the time about clinician engagement. So we started this very small program called the Scottish Patient Safety Fellowship Program. It was it's a low budget affair, uh, uh, but it is um, it has a small uh, residency component where we might come together for two or three days, and then they go off and they do their project, and they come back together for just a couple days. I, I just cannot tell you what that investment has done. Hmm. So you take it's a place for enthusiasts. Uh, we I think we had at the start we started with maybe 10 slots, maybe 12 slots, and now actually several countries have paid tuition to be part of that program. But the last I can't remember, but the last cohort it lasts about nine months. The last cohort I think had about 400 applications for uh, maybe 25, 30 slots. Uh, so you know, in a time when everyone says, oh dear, what are we going to do? You've got to provide something for these people. You have got to, you know, if you don't grab hold of them and and get them into positions with the skills they need so that they can influence this where it really matters out in care, uh, that's who these people are. They're jobbing clinicians and uh, I'd say probably two-thirds of them are physicians. So there's no problem with that engagement, but you've got to get them in. You've got to say, and, and You know, we were thinking, what can we do to get clinicians involved? And we used the same mantra that we use, how much by when. So we said, okay, let's have a little, let's have a test. We want want, uh, 20 docs in 20 days. So everybody had to go find, we have 20 people. Docs had to go find another doc to bring in. And so we measured it, and that's how we got it, but you had to have a strategy. There was no point continuing to say, oh, woe was me. We don't have clinicians involved. Just had to go out there and, and get them, and there's no paucity of them, not at all.
0: Interesting. Thank you very much, Carol. Well, we're coming to the end. I want to ask John, just he's going to um, make a, a very quick mention of something coming up coming up at IHI. Somebody has a a big, broad question for uh, Derek, which may be the one uh, we'll wrap up on, but we'll we'll quickly wrap things up. Um,
1: uh, John? Yeah, uh, thanks, Madge. Uh, We've heard from Derek and Carol today about the success Scotland has had embracing the Triple Aim at the community and national level. If you'd like to learn more about how to move your organization and community closer to the Triple Aim, we invite you to become one of IHI's
2: Triple Aim Improvement Communities. The IHI Triple Aim improvement community will begin September twenty thirteen. For more information, visit IHI.org slash triple aim or email us at triple aim at ihi.org.
0: Thanks a lot, John. So all right, Derek, we'll, we'll kind of uh I don't know if this is the best for last, but um, somebody wants to know how would, would you opine on universal health care and, and uh, kind of uh, the private one, as uh, somebody is saying uh, here. Uh, U.S., of course, in the midst of trying to get more universal coverage, for sure. Some parting thoughts on that, yeah.
3: I don't think anyone would argue that um, we, shouldn't be, we shouldn't all be striving towards universal coverage. That seems to me to be a, a good thing to aim at. Uh, but, you know, the, the challenges, Jeff alluded to this earlier, the challenges are much the same regardless of the nature of your system. We're all facing some economic pressures, some demographic pressures, some pressures around the changing epidemiology, multimorbid uh, chronic conditions. People's expectations are changing. It doesn't matter whether you're in a public system or a private system. You've got the same set of challenges to face. And actually, I think what healthcare reform in the States is starting to do, and this is going to take a long time, I think, this is evolution, not revolution, is um, mean that some of the responses to those kind of challenges will start to converge and that, you know, um, the, the AAA will, will start to become the way in which, regardless of whether you're in a public system or a private system, regardless of whether you have universal coverage or not, you need to start thinking about population health, about quality of care, and about value. And I think that will be the big challenge for the U.S., is how to move from volume to value uh, as the kind of the organizing principle for that um, financial leg of the AAA. Um, but I, I think people often make more of those differences between systems than actually exist in practice. Well, we look forward, Derek, uh, to your joining us at
0: IHI and being able to hear from you more and your help <laughs> with moving from volume to value. Thank you very much, Derek Seeley. Thanks, Maureen. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, Carol Harrison as well. Um, and thank you for being an engaged audience uh, today. If you know somebody who didn't get a chance to uh, join the program live, please please remind them uh, that they can find all the resources on IHI.org uh, tomorrow, links, uh, the audio, et cetera. Uh, just very quickly, next up on WIHI on June 27th, two weeks, oops, oops one week from now, uh, we're going to be uh, talking about the Partnership for Patients, another big Talk about a national safety, uh, patient safety initiative here in the U.S. And we've got some interesting uh, work we're going to hear about from Ascension and uh, Joint Commission resources, um, and some really good stuff that's been going on. So that info is on our website right now. A reminder, as John said, thanks for filling out the survey when you down when you log off. You can download the chat and the slides. Or you can find all of it. Uh, tomorrow on ihi.org. And if you have any questions whatsoever, you can email info at ihi.org. We have a great crew who help make WIHI possible. They include Mike Sweeney, Jameson Case, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Vicki Minden, John Gauthier, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, and Matt Morse, and our Northeastern co op, Nicole Wells. And it's my privilege, as it always is, to host a program. That's about spirited learning and improving patient care, most of all. And it's even uh, more gratifying to think about this happening all around the world. For the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, thank you, audience. Thank you, our guests. I'm Ash Kaplan. Good day, everyone.